Welcome to the third episode of Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. Today, we are one-on-one with legendary Kentucky trial lawyer, Tyler Thompson. Tyler is a senior partner with Dolt, Thompson, Shepard, and Conway in Louisville and focuses his practice on a wide variety of complex litigation matters. Tyler's career speaks for itself as he has spent decades representing injured families throughout the country and has obtained multi-million dollar verdicts and results in Kentucky and beyond. In addition to being a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, Tyler is a past president of the KJA and a recipient of the prestigious Pete Perlman Trial Lawyer of the Year Award. In today's episode, Tyler shares numerous lessons learned in the course of his career, including the importance of saying no, the distinction of knowing when to try versus settle a case, and our ability to use the court system to make the world a safer place. We hope that you enjoy today's discussion. Tyler, good afternoon. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. All right. Well, Tyler, thank you for uh, agreeing to sit down with me and the Kentucky Justice Association. Uh, thank you for your time today. If you don't mind starting out, just uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, how you got to where you are today. Well, um, I'm an attorney in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and um, um, you know, I, I grew up on a farm in uh, Virginia near Cumberland Gap. My parents were both from Eastern Kentucky, from Harlan County. And uh, um, when I was seven, we moved to Richmond, Kentucky. And um, my mother taught at the university there. My dad worked up there in financial aid with Veterans Affairs. And so uh, um, when I graduated school, I attended Berea College. And uh, when I got out of Berea, I came to uh, University of Louisville Law School and graduated from the law school. And then, um, you know, it's interesting. People ask you, well, you know, how did you decide to become a lawyer? I'm not sure I ever really decided to do it. It's just, it was something I always just knew I was going to do. You know, uh, in high school, I knew I was going to go to law school. I, I always read a tremendous amount, uh, almost, you know, almost like an addiction to reading. So, um, you know, I thought those skills of reading and writing would, uh, would, you know, play well in the legal profession. And that was probably what it was most suited for. So, um, uh, came to law school and then, uh, I also knew what I wanted to do maybe from being at Berea for four years, but, uh, I wanted to, um, kind of represent, you know, the little guy that was, um, you know, up against the big corporations. And so, I wanted to be a plaintiff's trial lawyer, and I sent out um, three resumes. I clerked for uh, Larry Franklin and, and Nick King, uh, and uh, mostly for Nick, and uh, uh, and he was just such a great guy to work for. You know, it's it's almost uh, you, you know there's an old saying, guilt by association. Well, there's also sort of credibility by association. And, and I tried to surround myself with some really good people. So I asked Nick, um, you know, um, who are the three best trial lawyers, you know, around Louisville? And he gave me three names and I sent out, that's the only three people I sent resumes to. And uh, uh, I got um, hired by Fred Dolt. And Fred was uh, kind of the Dean of trial lawyers. He was a member of the inner circle of advocates and uh, uh, his best friend was Charlie Leapson. They graduated one and two in their class back in, I believe it was 1952. But Charlie was on the, you know, Kentucky Supreme Court, and he was just a you know, sort of towering intellect, and, and, and Fred was brilliant. So 
I worked for Fred for a couple of years, and then we formed a partnership with uh, with Scott Firkin, who now runs the uh, Louisville Bar Association. And um, and then Scott, uh, after uh, a number of years, left to pursue. Uh, um, he was the head of the Brain Injury Association of Kentucky, then the Bar Association. But Fred and I were partners for 17 years till he passed away, and um, and then I've practiced. Uh, you know, uh, I have other people I practice with now. Uh, we've got a really really nice office, good good bunch of people. You know, for me, it's all about the team. Uh, I like to tell people, you know, the the Boston. Celtics were were great when they had Bird and Parrish and uh, McHale, but uh, um, you know when they didn't have them, the, the team wasn't so good, and they didn't you know they didn't perform as well. Same same with LeBron, you know when he moves from the Miami Heat to the uh, you know up up to, to Cleveland, you know he got to, you know Miami doesn't do well when he leaves, and Cleveland doesn't either. So you know I think it's important to put a good team together, and uh, anyway that's what I've tried to do. I think, you know, the Kentucky folks that listen to this especially know a lot about you and, and your practice. But, uh, you know, for the, for the people that don't know you, um, what kind of cases do you handle and focus on? Well, you know, it, it's, it's uh, a, a mixture. Uh, they're all sort of catastrophic injuries. You know, people that are uh, brain injured or, uh, or uh, you know, have suffered paralysis or, you know, loss of a limb, loss of visions, you know, something that is, is life-altering and, you um, um, you know, that they, uh, um, uh, that's happened because somebody else was careless and, you know, didn't pay attention to what they were doing. And, um, so, uh, generally, you know, because the damages in those cases are, are significant, the, uh, the insurance companies don't want to pay. And so that's, that's when we come in and, uh, um, we do a lot of medical negligence work, do a lot of product liability work, uh, had a number of trucking cases, motorcycle wrecks, uh, you know, a little bit of a mixed bag uh, in that regard. You know, I see your verdicts often and, and they're phenomenal. Um, you've obviously tried a lot of cases. Did, did you get uh, did your trial practice? Did you start trying cases pretty early on uh, when you when you got to your career? You, you know, it's the, the kind of cases we were doing, and I was fortunate, um, you know, I wanted to work on big cases. So when I went to work for Fred, um, you know, some of the first cases I worked on were, were um, you know, we had a client who was uh, in a vegetative state from an anesthesia, uh, you know, catastrophe at, uh, at a VA hospital. We had uh, a client who had suffered some horrific burns and a propane gas explosion. Um, you know, a, a young lawyer can't try those kind of cases. You know, they're too complex. They, um, uh, you know, they require some seasoning. You know, it, it's it's a learning curve. Uh, as I tell young lawyers, look, you know what? First time you tried to ride a bicycle, you weren't very good at it. You know, first time you tried to shoot a basketball, you weren't very good at it. Uh, you know, the more you did it, the better you got. And it's going to take a little while. You know, you you. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's some, there's some, uh, you don't know what you don't know yet. And there's some traps you can fall into. It's, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of mistakes you can make. I, I think a lot of times that's why these insurance companies don't pay. You know, there are so many hoops to jump through in litigating these cases and it takes a while. You know, our average case takes about three years to get to trial. And, uh, 
you know, there's a lot of mistakes can be made along the way. So uh, I've noticed that when I've reviewed some of the cases that you've been involved in, you know, I'll see the trial and I'll, I'll read about it and I'll see the, you know, the injury date and I'll be like, man, that's three, four five years ago. And uh, like you said, you know, you're, you're involved with these cases for a long time. Yeah. I, I usually, I think it's really important to let the client know that and set the expectation ahead of time. Uh, I tell young lawyers, you can avoid a lot of conflict just by educating your client. And, you know, uh, that sounds crazy. Your client comes in and you say, look, it's probably going to be three years before I can get your case to trial, you know, and they're like, why is that? You know, and so, so, um, you know, it sounds incredulous, but it, it, you know, when you explain the system, you know, how long it takes when you file something, they've got 30 days to respond. Um, you know, then they've got another 15 days to do this. The, then you've got to set up depositions and given the number of lawyers involved, how, you know, um, and what their schedules are, um, you know, kind of one of my criticisms with, uh, with our judges, uh, and they have a tremendously difficult job and most of our judges are fabulous, but th there are some who, uh, you know, don't quite hold, uh, the party's feet to the fire when it comes to scheduling things. You know, I, I get frustrated going over and having defense lawyers say, well, you know, I've got a trial here and I've got a trial here and I'm going to be out of town that week. And, uh, you know, I want to attend those depots personally, so I can't let anybody in my office do it. And, you know, I finally say, judge, if they're too busy, you know, they, they need to get somebody else to handle the case or you need to order them to, to you know, to move the case along and take these depositions. I find myself having to file motions to compel deposition dates from the defendants, you know, um, which is, is just not something you should have to do, but um, you, you mentioned it. it's, it's kind of funny. I'll, I'll go to, you know, I'm, uh, whether it's, you know, setting a status conference or a trial date and the defense attorney pulls out their, their schedule and I've got a trial this month, next month, the following month, your honor. And I know good and well, they haven't tried a case in two or three years. Like you said, oh, yeah. it drives me crazy. You know, and most of these defense lawyers are buddies of mine. You know, I mean, they, they come over and cook dinner here or, you know, I mean, I know them all well. We all travel together. I've seen them stand there with a blank calendar and argue they've got, you know, uh, trial. <laughs> it's, well, it's not on my calendar yet, you know. Uh, and then they laugh about it. You know, uh, I've heard them tell me that, you know, when they get behind closed doors, they laugh about it. And, uh, um, you know, it's kind of the unwritten rule you know, you're not available this month. I'm not available that month. And they don't all do that. You know, I, I, there's just some that uh, in certain cases when they don't want to trial at a certain time, you know, uh, they're conveniently unavailable. Uh, it's interesting with you, Tyler. I've, I've, you know, been friends with you for many years on social media and things. And you, uh, it seems like you get to do some pretty cool stuff on your cases. It'll, uh, I'll see a post, you'll be in, you know, Ireland or somewhere taking a deposition. Um, how is it that your practice takes you, you know, to, to these interesting places like you, like you often get to travel to? You know, I, I have gotten to go overseas a few times. Uh, I had a depot in uh, South Africa of an engineer I was going to go to. Uh, it was a case Pete Perlman and I had for a, for a, a neck brace that uh, we we argued was defective, and uh, I ended up doing that one by Scott because it was a 24-hour plane ride. <laughs> but uh, but I've taken some depots in Germany and then. Uh, in Ireland, and it's usually, uh, uh, you know, uh, overseas manufacturing, you know, where you've got an engineering plant over there, and, uh, um, you know, in big cases, you, you know, um, 
a lot of times you got to track down all the uh, uh, all the documents and depose um, uh, the people that worked on the case. You, you mentioned tracking down. One of the things I've been, you know, I think sometimes that the best decision we can maybe ever make is saying no to a case rather than saying yes. Um, how do you, when you get a call or your firm gets a call, what do you do kind of to investigate a case and decide, you know, whether it's a case you want to be involved in? What's, what's that early phase like for you when you decide to get involved in a case? Uh, that, that's a that's interesting. It's an interesting question. I uh, and you nailed it. I I would say the most important decision is not to take the case. Uh, it's, it's to not take the case. And and uh, I've had experts, you know, almost be a little apologetic sometimes, you know, to tell me it's not a case. And and I say, look, you know, let me tell you something. All I want is the truth. So uh, the last thing I want to do is get three years down the road and. Uh, you know, these cases are expensive. Uh, you know, we, we, we generally spend, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars on a case, but we've had cases we spent five, six, $750,000 on one case. And, wow. you know, that's, um, that's a very risky proposition, you know, so you gotta be incredibly careful about what you take. Um, and, you know, you, you may have a good case starting out and then later on down the road, find out some facts and, and suddenly it's not. Um, but, you know, that's a very complex analysis when deciding to take a case or not take a case. I would say the most important factor in a case is who's your client. You know, jurors want to help people they like and they don't want to help people they don't like. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we're all human beings and, and, and some people are, are, uh, are, you know, more deserving than others. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times uh, their own conduct may have contributed in ways, you know, so I think you got to see who your client is, uh, you know, what's their, uh, depending on where the trial is, how respected are they in their community? You know, you're going to get a bunch of jurors that know these people and, um, uh, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a very complex analysis. You know, you're looking at who the client is, who the judge is, uh, who the defense lawyer is, uh, likely to be in that area. Uh, you know, if you sue that defendant, uh, a lot of times we know that ahead of time. Med Mouse a tough case because we know enough, you know, we've been doing this long enough that sometimes what looks like a case isn't. And sometimes what you think may not be a case might be. Um, uh, I've had people send us cases to look at a certain aspect of the case, you know, uh, a certain part of a procedure. And you're like, no, that's not a case but this other part is, you know, they, uh, you know, that, you know, uh, it's not a defect to cause this problem during a surgery. Uh, the fair to timely recognize it and treat it is, I'm sorry, not a defect. It's not negligent to cause it, but, um, so, you know, it's, it's, that's something you can spend a day talking about, you know, uh, matter of fact, well, I've done seminars on it, you know, how, how do you choose your cases and what do you look for in a case? So, how many um, how many cases do you handle at a time? Like, is it is it say pretty constant for you? To, I imagine it's a pretty small number. Yeah, we've got there's uh, seven lawyers in in my office, and I would say at any given time we have about um, forty to fifty cases, maybe thirty five to fifty, uh, sort of among seven lawyers, and then um, you know we may be looking at another one hundred and twenty five that we we're looking at 
um, you know, I think last year we got 700 calls um, and took about maybe two cases out of 700 calls. Oh my gosh, that's, well, just a fraction of a percent that you're actually taking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting with MedMal, we get a lot of calls, but, you know, the, the cases are so expensive um, that, you know, unless the injury is, you know, meets a certain threshold, you, you can't justify taking the case because the expenses will outseed, you know, will exceed the recovery. So I tell a lot of people, you know, you got bad medical care, um, you got terrible medical care, but you don't have a good legal case because of it. You, you touched on it a little bit with the motions to compel and, and some of the things you get frustrated with on a case. Um, what advice do you have for people that, you know, to keep your cases moving? Uh, you don't want your cases just, you know, getting stagnant, but, you know, keep moving them for yourself and your clients. How do, how do you do that? Yeah, that's a, um, um, well, you know, one thing is it's important to be nice, but it's more important to be respected. So I would say, you know, you can be nice and accommodating to the other counsel to an extent, and then you got to file your motions, you know, and then you got to ask for sanctions at some point, you know, if it keeps up. Uh, I've got a case now, we got a default judgment in that, you know, uh, we asked for discovery for about a year and a half and, uh, you know, we just kept getting stonewalled where they would not give us documents. And finally, the judge said, I'm going to give you one more chance. Uh, you know, they didn't, they turned over a fraction of what they should have and we got a default judgment on liabilities. Now we're, you know, trying a case on damages. Uh, but you have to be, you know, there's a fine line between uh, accommodating um, and being unreasonable. You know, uh, it's, it's just, you have to sort of work through that. Uh, one important thing is, is just to stay on top of your cases. You know, it's sort of like out of sight, out of mind. And, you, you know, you've kind of got to diary things and say, okay, you know, those interrogatories came in. Well, don't just file them away. Actually get them out and look at them and see what they gave you. You know, as a general rule, uh, we get the interrogatories in and the discovery, and then we file, you know, we write a letter and say, hey, you didn't respond to this, 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 and this. Um, you know, I, I get frustrated uh, if I have someone in my office that, you know, I find out the interrogatories came in two months ago or three months ago and they haven't followed up on it, you know. So you have to follow up and, um, uh, you know, about the second or third time you make a motion with the judge, if you handle it correctly, uh, you know, uh, uh, Part of the problem is these judges don't like these disputes. You know, they're busy, they're, they're, they're overworked, their dockets are crowded. They got a bunch of people there on motion hour and they don't like lawyers coming over and go, judge, he wouldn't give me this, I asked for it. You know, they're like, you all work that out yourselves. I, I, I think sometimes the judges don't realize you can't if the other side won't cooperate. You know, if they're just not gonna give it to you, you can't work it out. So. I, I tend to try to sort of educate the judge and also, you know, put in a little sort of a ameliorating language and say, you know, judge, I'm, you know, um, uh, I know the court's busy and this isn't the motion the court likes to entertain. I, you know, it's not one I've wanted to file. However, we're at the point where we have no alternative. You know, we have to ask the court for some assistance here. 
we cannot move forward without these documents. It's not fair to our client. We've asked for them four times. The rules allow us to get them. You know, you have to kind of be, be firm uh, a little bit. Oh, you've been involved in, you know, so many big cases and, and your verdicts speak for themselves. Uh, is there a case that, you know, stands out in your mind that, you know, one that you learned from and one you took lessons from and that, you know, really had a big impact on your career and, you know, made you a better lawyer? Oh, um, you know, I've had a few that, that really, you know, were, um, you know, I think you always learn more uh, in trial. Um, um, so th those are the cases I learned the most about. You know, Fred Dolt used to always tell me, you can never truly prepare a case correctly until you've tried a case. Then you realize all the things you wish you had done. <laughs> you know, all the little things that I wish I'd asked that question. We don't know this now. There's a hole here. We didn't tie that down. You know, there's a loose end here. And uh, um, uh, so, uh, you know, the, the defendants, generally, you know, take their facts and, and look for wiggle room. You know, uh, how can I get out of this? Or, you know, uh, I've got a problem here. What can I say to fix it? Or how can I fix it? So you want to have them locked down, you know, and until you've truly tried some cases, it's hard to, I think, uh, for young lawyers to know, you know, where those holes are, because it's, it's during the trial that you realize, oh, I wish I'd done this differently. So, um, yeah, you know, we had a, a I've tried some birth trauma cases for, you know, brain injured children, uh, you know, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy injuries, you know, where the, the uh, there was a lack of oxygen or blood flow during delivery that wasn't attended to. Um, you know, um, we've had uterine hyperstem cases, what they call tachycystole now. Um, and, um, you know, the, the case that I put the most time in on was a case in West Virginia. And, um, I got involved in some litigation there with some uh, helping some lawyers uh, who, who, who were sort of overwhelmed. They had 72 cases against one doctor. Um, uh, he actually had about 126 cases against him. They had gotten 180 calls against this one doctor, but it was this, you know, sort of bizarre case where this, this, Osteopaths showed up in West Virginia. They had a new CEO at a, at a small 40 bed hospital. Um, the credentialer had left and they'd appointed this young 21 year old with a history degree um, who had worked in that office for a few months as the new quote credentialer. It's the first doctor she had ever credentialed at a hospital. And uh, they hired a headhunter to find an orthopedic surgeon because they bill more than anybody else. So. Uh, this guy shows up about three days later. The CEO's uh, bonus was based on gross billings, not net receipts or, you know, so he's, he very candidly said in his deposition, yeah, you know, I was there one day and, and started trying to find an orthopedic surgeon because they bill more than anybody else. And, you know, that's, that's how my bonus was calculated. So this guy shows up and says he's an orthopedic surgeon with a subspecialty in spine surgery. He's an anesthesiologist with a subspecialty in pain management. He can cover the OB because he's had OB training. He can cover the ER because he's had ER training and he's a lawyer and they hired him the next week. Um, he moves up about a week later and says, here's where you need to send my, my money, $35,000 a month. Uh, you know, is what you're paying me. 
And they said, well, you're not credentialed yet. And he said, well, check my contract. I get paid upon relocation. So now they're losing $35,000 a month until he starts doing surgeries. So they give him temporary privileges. And it turns out, you know, the guy has never completed a residency. Um, and he, he was just, you know, bad oh enough. He got his law degree over the internet off the coast, uh, some internet scam off the coast of Australia that, uh, or New Zealand that the government had shut down, called it a national disgrace to the, uh, to the country. <laughs> to, you could get a degree in anything. You wanna be an electrical engineer, you could be. Uh, so uh, that was his law degree. And then uh, he had been kicked out of a bunch of residencies. Uh, and every time you know, I caught the hospital billing inappropriately, so they wanted to get rid of me. Or He did surgery on just about every patient that walked in. He told them they needed plates and screws or spine surgery. And this guy that had never completed a residency in anything was doing spine surgeries. Um, it's really about as bad as it gets. So we ended up with a suit against him. There were some device companies paying him kickbacks um, and um, uh, you know violating the law. And, and so we sued him and two device companies. And I spent about three years traveling back and forth to West Virginia, working on that. Tried it for a month against the hospital on the credentialing claim. And... Um, you know, they thought they had some defenses to it. Uh, you know, you could make an argument that they didn't know what was going on a little bit, but, uh, but it was, it was truly horrendous. And so, uh, he had kind of covered his tracks a little bit with some documents and, but, you know, uh, you know, we thought the jury would see right through that and they did. And so, uh, um, we tried it for a month and the jury came back in about 18 minutes with a finding of, of compensatory liability and punitive liability. So then we were gearing up to try the underlying claims on damages and the cases settled. But uh, you know, we took 120 depositions in that case all around the country. And, and uh, it was a, you know, that was a good learning experience. Got thrown in the fire. I think I've had a case go close to two weeks before, and you know, maybe 20 depositions. I can't even fathom, you know, a month long trial and a, and a hundred and, 20 depositions in a case. How do you, uh, you know, how do you keep yourself sane during, uh, you know, handling cases like that? And, you know, that's, that's stressful. Our job stressful as it is. How do you, uh, you know, how do you kind of balance your work and your life? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, so I'm not the best at, uh, staying sane during trial. I, I tend to not sleep very well, you know, cause I, I, I do read a lot and I find myself, you know, staying up all night reading, then your mind's racing and, and you really can't sleep well. Um, what I've sort of discovered is the more you do it a little bit, the more relaxed you get about it. And so a lot of those nerves, uh, you know, tend to subside. I know some very good trial lawyers, you know, who told me they throw up before every trial, you know, so fortunately I've not had that problem, but uh, um, I, um, I don't sleep well, and that is an, is an issue. You know, I, I, one of the things I try to do, the cases that we handle can, can really take a mental toll. You know, you, you're dealing with, with tragedy and with catastrophe. And, you know, I've had people in my office who uh, are truly in anguish. I mean, you, it's palpable. You, you, can, you can cut the the hurt and anguish with a knife almost and you know that 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 can um, 
you know, you sort of have to relive their ordeal with them uh, when you meet with them. And then when they give their deposition, you have to relive it again. And then if you go to trial, you have to relive it again. And um, it can be, it can be um, uh, taxing um, uh, psychologically. Um, you know, some of the things we see are just, um, you know, are just tough to, to get your hands around. So um, my way of dealing with that is, you know, I grew up on a farm. I love farms. So, you know, I, I get out to the farm and uh, enjoy the, you know, peace and beauty of nature. And uh, I like to, I like outdoor activities. I, you know, I golf, I, I fly fish. And I've got some great friends uh, around the country and uh, I take trips, um, I've, you know, uh, about once or twice a year, we'll go some really great place, you know, fish, the, um, you know, fish in the Pyrenees or, you know, uh, Brazil in the jungle or Argentina and Patagonia and, you know, been to Ireland and been to Slovenia and, you know, some really, really interesting locales, uh, uh, Venezuela, uh, but, uh, you know, you have to find a good balance, you know, between work and enjoying life, uh, or it will get to you. I know you try a lot of cases, a lot of complicated cases, and, and like you said, just the month long and the hundreds of depositions, but uh, you seem to, you know, find good ways of relaxing, and it's, uh, I think, it, like what you just said, it speaks a lot to taking care of ourselves outside of the courtroom, especially with everything mentally and physically that we have to deal with, with our clients. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of hobbies. You know, I've, I've always had a lot of hobbies. I like to pull around. Uh, the, I've tried to learn to play the violin for years. I, I still can't, but, but, uh, you know, I like to paint watercolors. I've kind of goofed around with that a little bit. And uh, I finally, you know, convinced myself, you, you know, you really don't have to be the best at everything. That, that takes a lot of stress off and, um, you know, makes it enjoyable. You know, you don't give up that way when you realize you're not going to be very good at it. Uh, some, you know, you can just enjoy it. I heard an attorney speak recently and it, it was before my last trial and it, it really hit home for me. You know, he was, he was talking about, you, you're never going to be perfect. You, you, you got to stop being so hard on yourself. It's, I don't oh. care how many cases you try, it's not going to be perfect. And I'll, I'll come home. My wife's a psychologist and I'll be so upset sometimes. And that just, you know, it, I, I have to remind myself that you're going to mess up. You're, and a jury doesn't care. You don't have to be perfect. It's, it's never going to be perfect in, in, in any case. You know what? That, that is such good advice. And, uh, you know, Fred Dolt, who, who was you know, almost like a father to me in some ways, he was such a great guy. But he used to tell me, Tyler, you shoot for 100%, but if you get 85%, you're doing okay. You know, and I tell, I've told that to every lawyer in my office um, because we are hard on ourselves, you know, and when you, you know, if you have a case and you don't feel like, because you can't do everything. And when you realize you didn't do everything and, um, you know, you, you start feeling like, oh, I've let this client down, you know, they were depending on me, you know, they had a, you know, trucking disaster or medical disaster. The last thing they need is a legal disaster. I should have done this. You know, you, you, you know, usually you can fix things, you know, there's time to get things done or, you know, if you, um, you know, wish you had done something else, there's always going to be something else you wish you had done. And, and usually it's not a problem. Uh, and, and we are too hard on ourselves usually, you know, so, but that's, that's great advice. I tell that to everybody too. We hope you are enjoying this episode so far. 
Before we get back to the second half of our one-on-one, enjoy this message from KJA Platinum sponsor, Ringler Associates, Brad Cecil, Cindy Chanley, and Gail Kristen, sponsors of Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. On behalf of Brad Cecil, Gail Kristen, and myself, Cindy Chanley, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. As your KJA Platinum sponsors, we appreciate all the work you do. As you continue in your practice, keep in mind that we at Ringler are your objective settlement advisors. If you have problems on any part of the settlement resolution, give us a call. We now return to our discussion with Tyler Thompson. You've obviously been um, very involved uh, for many years with the KJA. Um, How have you benefited from the KJA over the years, you know, with your practice, the relationships, and just what you've seen, uh, the impact it's had on, on us being able to try cases and represent our clients in Kentucky? Well, you know, the I, I would say that the KJA has done more for for ensuring that we have uh, fair and adequate laws um, than any other organization or institution in Kentucky. Um, and I love the KJA. It's it's uh, it's the nicest bunch of people. The, the CLEs are fabulous. Um, you know, but, you know, uh, I'm thankful to it because it really is what protects our civil justice system. I mean, it, um, um, you know, every legislative session, everybody wants immunity, every bottled gas company, every electrical company, every trucking company, you know, um, every builder, they all want immunity from, from liability. And uh, there's not a it's not that there's a problem. They don't get sued much. It's, it's, you know, this, this rhetoric, you know, has sort of caught on. Um, that's another whole story, but, but, you know, the KGA protects our civil justice system. Uh, they've got tremendous CLEs, uh, you know, uh, you know, Pete Perlman for years, you know, brought in friends to speak at these seminars and, and we get people from all over the country who come here and talk about, uh, the types of cases, uh, the types of way to try cases, uh, things we need to be careful about in our practices. You know, the, the, the educational seminars are absolutely first rate. It, you know, you just, you just can't beat them. Um, you know, and the friendship and camaraderie is, is unbelievable. You know, um, I, I don't get out much. You know, I'm, I'm just not a terribly social person. My, my wife, you know, she's a physician and she's not either. So we tend to stay home a lot, you know, and when I go to these KJA meetings, um, um, you know, uh, or events and get to see old friends and lawyers and judges, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's like a, um, homecoming in a, in a sense. So, uh, I enjoy the, the, the friendships and I've made some of my best friends through the KGA. It's a, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, my concern for the KGA is um, perpetuating it. You know, I think it's that important. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate to have some incredible executive directors. We had Penny Gold before and, and, and Marisa Fons has been there for years. Uh, Marisa's the finest executive director in the country. I mean, she's just, phenomenal and but she's not going to be there forever you know and when I was talking about the team earlier uh, 
you know, we've been fortunate to have our own LeBron James, <laughs> sort of, you know, our own Michael Jordan and Marisa, but she's going to transition out at some point, you know. Uh, so I think, you know, we need a secession plan. Uh, we've got a great team there, but uh, um, the work is so important. It really needs to continue. Uh, and, and, you know, strongly about our civil justice system, uh, that it's the fabric of our society. It's what, you know, when people believe in a system that they can sit down with 12 people and resolve their disputes uh, and, uh, and accept that, that it's a fair system, that they got a fair shake, win or lose. You know, and if 12 people in my community heard these facts that were presented fairly, um, you know, uh, then I can accept that result. That's, that's about as good as it gets. And when that system breaks down, you know, you get the IRA in Northern Ireland or the, you know, guys blowing up the Oklahoma federal building. I mean, you know, when people don't think the system works for them, they get frustrated and feel like they've, you know, got to go another route. So, I, you know, I, I think this system, it doesn't just protect the litigants or the person who's been harmed. I think it protects society and it's, it's, in, you know, it's, that's why our founding fathers were so adamant about making it part of the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Well, you brought up a good point there, and, and this is something that when I spoke with Pete Perlman, he, he just absolutely blew me away when, when I asked him this question I'm about to ask you. Um, you know, we see Tyler Thompson and your verdicts and, you know, how phenomenal they are. But uh, other than your verdicts, what are you doing and what have been some components of your cases? you know, you're, where you make things safer. So maybe whether it's a, a post-verdict agreement or a settlement agreement where you're not just getting, you know, compensatory relief for your clients, but you're actually making things safer going forward and trying to see that this doesn't happen to somebody else. Yeah, you know, and, and I give Pete credit for this because it really wasn't on my radar screen, you know. Uh, I mean, I thought my job is to get my clients money, you know, and as much as I can. But... Um, you know, after talking with Pete, I, I've uh, made a conscious effort, uh, you know, when I can, you know, every case doesn't lend itself to that, but uh, we had a case uh, against a hospital who discharged a patient without um, um, having the patient seen by an MD. It, uh, the patient saw a nurse uh, and um, a patient that was having psychiatric problems needed to be kept in the hospital. And this nurse didn't recognize it and discharged the patient who, who then killed herself. Um, and um, in resolving the case, we told the hospital, um, we want you to uh, institute a policy that any patient who has come in uh, at, with an overt act toward um, self-harm like this um, will be seen by a board-certified psychiatrist before, you know, as part of the evaluation before they're discharged. And they said, okay, we'll do that. You know, so we had a young woman who was uh, hit by a cement truck and, and, uh, and uh, dragged um, uh, by this truck and killed. And so we told the company, we're not going to resolve the case unless you agree to put on sensors on all of your cement trucks um, so that when pedestrians, you know, you're making a turn and the pedestrians in your blind spot, um, 
you know, this, this sensor will go off and you will be able to, uh, you know, to know immediately, you know, that, that that's, there's someone in proximity and they agreed to do that. So, um, you know, there are, there are times when you can, um, you know, fashion a remedy that also um, makes things better for everyone else, not just your client, you know. Actually, talking about these fatalities, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this, your clients, they almost, when they've lost their loved one, they appreciate those, you know, extra, the, the non-financial agreements and the changes, they appreciate that almost as much as the settlement itself, if not even more, maybe. Yes, yes. And, um, and we donated part of our settlement to a scholarship fund that was established in the, uh, in her name, you know, at, at one of the universities here. Um, you know, because, um, well, it's just the right thing to do, but, um, I, I've been really impressed. You know, I've got friends all over the country that, uh, are, you know, are phenomenal lawyers and, um, uh, members of some legal groups I'm in. And that's, that's, you know, I see some of the things they're doing, to, you know, to make things safer, um, that, you know, end up inuring to the greater good. And I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by it. And so, you know, kind of through their lead, you know, we've sort of made an effort at our office to, um, to you know, when we can resolve a case, you know, the problem with the civil law is you can't demand specific performance. You can't go in and say, okay, judge, I want you to order them to do this to make it safer. You know, all, all a civil case allows us to do is ask for money, you know, and so, but when you settle the cases, you can incorporate that into part of the settlement. And that's, that's, uh, uh, that's becoming a uh, uh, sort of a new part of the practice, uh, I guess, uh, among a lot of lawyers where they, they look for ways to make things better in that regard. I know that you, you, you do some trucking work and, and I do as well. And it, it, it's, it's just to the point where as, you know, as technologically advanced as we are, to me and, and you know when you can ask for it there's just no reason these trucking companies especially your larger companies with nice trucks they should have some type of crash awareness on those trucks yeah yeah absolutely you know it's um as it, as dangerous as those trucks are you know you, you got um you know it's not a, a vega hatchback going down the road you've got a, a vehicle that if it wrecks it's going to cause some major damage and very likely kill some people. So for those vehicles not to have it on there, it, it's, you know, it's nonsensical. Tyler, you've been, um, you know, you've, you've had great, a great career so far. And, you know, I, I still, obviously, I, I still consider you a pretty young lawyer. You've got a lot of career ahead of you. Um, for someone my age or even younger, what, um, what advice would you have for pursuing this career uh, and, and pursuing trial work and representing uh, folks in the civil justice system? Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you a few things that, that were, were told to me, um, you know, when I was a young lawyer uh, that, that I thought was good advice. And one was, you know, always put your client's interest ahead of your own, you know, and, um, you know, you, you can always find a, a reason to settle a case and not spend two weeks in trial all stressed out, you know, wanting to pull your hair out. But, you know, um, you know, sometimes it's in the client's interest. Sometimes it's in the client's interest to settle, even though you want to try the case, you know, so you, you have to say, okay, what's the best thing for my client here? 
put the client's interest ahead of your own. You know, I, I tell that to young lawyers. Um, um, you know, every case is different. You know, there's, there's no hard and fast rules about cases. What applies in one case may not apply in the other. There's so much subtlety and nuance to the law and to the fact situations that, you know, you really have to evaluate your cases uh, and try your cases, you know, sort of as one-offs. I mean, there are some things you want to do in every case, but, you know, there's always exceptions. Uh, when it comes to trial law, there's, there's no hard and fast rules, you know. Um, you know, the only argument I ever got in with Fred was, uh, was about putting a twin on. And, and we had a, a client who was horribly injured and she had a twin sister and he wanted me to put that twin sister on to show what our client, you know, would be like if she hadn't been injured. And, and it was a case I'd kind of worked up on my own. And I said, Fred, I'm not going to do it, you know. Uh, and the twin had had some, some problems. And, um, you know, there were some very legit reasons. And, um, you know, we ended up getting a, it was, it was the best verdict I ever got in a case. And, and he apologized later on. He said, you know, you're right. I, I hadn't been to those depositions. I hadn't seen the the client, I should not have been, you know, so insistent about that because I didn't do it. And, you know, that's, that's Fred and I were partners 17 years. We, we only had uh, probably two arguments, but that was one of them. He, he, he wanted me to put this twin sister on the stand in this case. And, but every case is different. Every, um, uh, you know, and you have to, you kind of got to go by, um, you know, by your gut a little bit, but also, you know, the gestalt of the case and how everything, um, um, how everything impacts. Um, the best advice I got one time was a great trial lawyer named Paul Levera out in Washington State. And he said, Tyler, a trial is not about presenting the facts. It's about creating a series of impressions based on the facts, you know, because that's how people uh, interpret and, and uh, remember things. It's what impression did they get? You know, it's kind of like the old thing salesmen say, you know, people won't remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel, you know? Well, you can apply that to the practice of law. People don't remember all the facts, but they remember what impression they got from the facts, you know? So, um, and then uh, young lawyers that want to do this work, I, I would say don't start out trying to do it, you know, find a lawyer to associate on your cases or work for, you know, in their firm and spend a few years learning. You know, the, the analogy I would use is medical residents. You know, these guys get out of med school, don't go start doing surgery. You know, they go, they, they start slow in, in, you know, PG year one and, and start working their way up uh, until the fourth year, you know, they're doing surgical cases on their own um, and, um, you know, after some incredibly intensive hands-on training. And I think that's sort of the same with trial practice. You know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's simple in some ways, but it's incredibly, um, complex, um, to do it right and do it well. And, you, you know, it, you really need to sort of learn where all the traps are and, and, um, and sort of how to conduct yourself. You know, I've seen young lawyers uh, who get really frustrated and angry with defense counsel sometimes, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's just because they don't know how to handle the situation. And it's, you know, it's better to, you know, I, I was very lucky to work for somebody who was, you know, uh, 
incredibly uh, bright and had a lot of integrity and had a tremendous amount of respect from the defense bar and uh, and other lawyers. And you you know you sort of learn how to uh, how to conduct yourself. Uh, you know, not always um, correctly, but most of the time. You're, um, you know, you've you've been trying cases for a long time now. Um, as society's changed and social media, I think our attention spans are shorter. Um, are, are you trying cases different these days than, than you did years ago? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the, uh, you know, in the in the sitcom era, you know, we decided that jurors' attention span was about 30 minutes uh, because, you know, that's what they did. They watched 30 minute sitcoms. Uh, I'm not sure it's 30 minutes anymore. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting. I was a history major, so um, one of the things I like to do is is you know, when I was a young lawyer, I'd go read old depositions. I'd go to the courthouse and you know get a really good lawyer like Doug Morris, you know, or somebody that had tried a case, and I would say, you know, I'd I'd go get the file. <laughs> I'd sit down and, and read how Doug did his depositions. What you know, and uh, um, and and I worked hard at it. You know, our, our parking garage. Uh, the, the iron gates uh, came down at, at one o'clock at night and I got stuck in that Starks building all the time because I wasn't out of the office before one. You know, I'd have to, uh, the garage attendant knew me very well because he had to come let me out, you know, at two or three in the morning all the time. So, um, you know, I, I would, um, would read stuff like that and, um, um, you know, try to, try to learn more. I, what, what was your question again? I got it off on track. <laughs> That's funny. You said that there's a couple cases of yours that I could pull up my server right now. I've got, uh, I've got every motion you filed in some cases and I've got every deposition you've taken in a couple of them. So I, I do that same thing, you know, with some of your work, but uh, I was asking you, you know, how, how do you try cases differently these days? Oh yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I got off on, I got off on a tangent, but so I, you know, the, the rule of thumb is, uh, uh, shorter is better. Uh, you know, jurors um, want us to respect their time. Um, and uh, I, I think jurors are much less tolerant of lawyers who beat around the bush, who who drag out questions with theatrics, you know. Uh, you know, the, the old thing of preferencing a question with seven other questions leading up to it, uh, you know, you got to do that in, in low doses now, I think. Uh, um, and, and then of course, you know, with this pandemic and coronavirus, uh, you know, how that is going to turn out, um, you know, is, uh, is yet to be seen how we're going to be trying cases, uh, in this scenario. Um, um, you know, I've, I've, I've got concerns, uh, and I'm not sure the judges understand, you know, or really have a handle around it now, how we're going to pick jurors you know, how you get people in a room to do a, an appropriate voir dire, uh, which in my mind is clearly the most important part of the case. You know, Charlie Leapson used to always say a case is only as good as the 12 jurors that hear it, you know, and he doesn't mean the smartest or anything that it's the ones that have a, the least amount of bias because we all have biases and we all have certain, you know, uh, inherent prejudice, you know, if you got somebody on your jury that's been hit by a truck, you know, that's not fair to the defense counsel if it's a trucking case. By the same token, you know, if they work for a trucking company uh, and got sued for wrecking a truck, you know, that's probably not fair to my client. So we, 
as lawyers, both sides need to be able to weed these kinds of people out and get a, a, you know, a jury that's fair, unbiased, impartial, you know, that everybody has to feel like the system worked for them. Um, and it's a beautiful system. If, if, if it, you know, if we're allowed to, to make it work, if you can't do a voir dire, I'm not sure how you, you know, how we go about our trials. So there's some experiments now with, with zoom voir dires and some things going on. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm hoping that it, uh, that it's not a permanent thing and that we, you know, are soon back to, uh, you know, back to trying cases the way we, we have. Tyler, we've already gone longer than I, than I said we would. Um, I could talk to you all day, a couple of days for that matter. And I think everyone's really going to enjoy listening, listening to you and hear, hearing some of your wisdom. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you take referrals from other lawyers um, for the, for the attorney folks that are listening. You know, what kind of cases uh, are, are you interested in pursuing at this time? And how could somebody contact you if they want to talk about a case? Sure. We, um, yeah, we do. We get about 95% of our business from other lawyers, you know, who, who, um, you know, have a, you know, catastrophic case. It's a, you know, wrongful death or, or birth trauma, brain injuries, uh, you know, uh, and cases that are expensive, most long, young lawyers, you know, unfortunately to do these cases right, it takes a significant amount of money, you know, and, uh, uh, and a lot of firms, you know, who are busy with their regular practice, maybe don't have, you know, they get a case in like that. They don't have uh, the, the time or resources to spend, you know, two or three, $400,000 on a case. So that's the kind of cases we, we try to help with. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I look forward to everyone being able to listen to you and uh, good luck going forward. All right, John, thank you. Really appreciate it. It was great talking with you today. Thank you for listening to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring Richard Hay.